Today we're going to have something a little different. We are going to be doing an interview with Mark Pugsley. Mark was made famous in the podcast Bad Bets, where they talk about the takedown, or I guess the unwinding of what appears to be a fraud by by Trevor Milton of the company Nicola. This interview is going to be on whistleblower laws. And while it's not required for your passing of your financial services examinations, this is good information for you to be aware of as you practice your financial services career. If you have any thoughts or comments on this interview, please write me, Franz, at Series7Podcast.com. I have with me today in the studio Mark Pugsley, an attorney located here in Salt Lake City, and my partner, Brian Hunsaker. Let me tell you a little bit about Mark, and I'm reading this right from his website, which is PugsleyWood.com. Mark Pugsley has been handling securities disputes, financial fraud, and whistleblower cases for 28 years. His whistleblower practice includes preparing and filing whistleblower tips with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, and the Internal Revenue Service. He also handles False Claim Act, or QUI-TAM, lawsuits, FINRA arbitrations, and other types of investment disputes. Mark is based in our office in Utah, the state which boasts the largest number of Ponzi schemes per capita in the country. He has been recognized by super lawyers, best lawyers, benchmark plaintiffs, and Martindale Hubbard as one of the top securities lawyers in the country. He is licensed to practice law in Utah and California. All right, in my office is Brian Hunsaker and Mark Pugsley. Mark We've just talked a few minutes before I hit the record button about what you do. And you, I I heard about you as a result of listening to the podcast, the Bad Bets podcast. And you were mentioned prominently in bringing Trevor Milton to justice in that. I know you can't talk too much about that particular case here. Uh, Because I think you actually might have a movie deal working for this. Well, I I don't know. We, We will, it'll It'll be interesting to see how it plays out, uh, um, but I can I can talk about it. I can talk about it generally. It's okay. fine. Okay. Now that it's out there. All right. Well, and then Brian is my business partner. Brian and I have been in business together since 2020, and we knew each other probably about four years no, prior. 2020. 1999. 1999? Yeah. <laughs> 2020 is two years ago. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. 1999. <laughs> 2000 is what I'm thinking right. of. 2000. So we've been in business as partners for a long time. Anyway, I want to talk about what you do, Mark, because in our business, the financial services industry, and I'm an RIA, and Brian and I are RIAs, but we both started out as uh, stockbrokers uh, for wirehouses. And over the years, if you're in this business long enough, you're going to come across people that are less than honest. And in Utah, we seem to come across a lot of them. And Mark, I, ta- I read your bio from your website. Utah is a hotbed of activity in Ponzi schemes or scam artists and that sort of thing. So just go ahead and address your observations from your experience here in Utah. 
Sure. Um, let me say that, you know, when I graduated from law school many, many moons ago in 1994, uh, for years, my practice was entirely representing um, stockbrokers and brokerage firms primarily. I started out in Los Angeles and then moved to Utah, but most of that time, for actually until just a few years ago, a big part of my practice was representing um, uh, licensed people with issues that came up with FINRA and in customer customer claims, customer disputes, uh, SEC investigations, division of securities investigations. So I've done that. I've represented folks like you for many, many years um, and have grown to appreciate your business. Uh, there are good people and bad people in any industry, and I, I think most, most of you guys do good work. And I... I uh, so what happened to me is when I moved back to Utah where I was raised, um, I began to get calls. I was a securities litigator. I've been in securities for all uh, 28 years of my practice. And so I would get these calls from people and they would say, instead of kind of the usual stuff, they would say, hey, um, you know, I I put some money with this guy. He was went to church with me or he lived on the same street as I do and I need I need help because he isn't returning my phone calls that's usually the first sign is they don't return the phone calls and so I think early on in my career I started kind of developing an expertise I guess or a, at least a lot of knowledge about this problem that we have in Utah and na nationally I mean the biggest affinity scam in the world was Bernie Madoff and Bernie Madoff uh, targeted, you know, members of the Jewish community in New York and also in Florida. He belonged to a very fancy uh, club down in Florida that many of the people he knew there from the club, you know, became investors. And so what, what I deal with in what I've been dealing with for many years, isn't unique to Utah in any way, Utah, because we have a large, uh, LDS population or Mormon population, we have a unique, some unique issues here, but these issues happen in the Kiwanis Club. They happen, I've seen them, I've seen cases out of uh, uh, evangelical churches in the South. I've seen cases involving um, uh, pre predominantly black churches in California had a case involving that. So there, these issues happen all over. And I think from my perspective, I think just because I new securities and I was a litigator um, rather than a transactional type person, uh, people would come to me and want help. And so over uh, time, after after the Madoff uh, scandal and, and Enron, they passed the Dodd-Frank uh, statute. And Dodd-Frank put into place uh, a new regime in terms of securities regulation, but in, particularly, in particular, excuse me, they set up a new office of the whistleblower within the SEC. And because I knew securities and because I got these calls all the time, I thought, well, this is interesting. I kind of am in, I'm uniquely positioned to um, alert the securities uh, regulators who I knew, uh, both state, mostly state, uh, sorry, mostly federal, but also state. And I could talk to them about, hey, you know, I got this call and it sounds like there's something going on here. And I, I just, because I am such a specialized area of practice, I, I would always get these calls. And um, so I, and then when the whistleblower statute got passed, um, 
as part of my normal practice of taking phone calls and helping people, a lot of times just giving them some free advice. I do that all the time. It's like, well, you know, you should call this guy or call this person or this regulator. And I, I said, well, you know what? Some of these, when I'm getting calls, I could, I could maybe monetize those. I could represent these folks on a contingency fee basis um, and become a whistleblower lawyer. And this was, this would have been uh, 10 or 11 years ago. I forget the year that Dodd-Frank passed, but the whistleblower office was very, very new, and it was there were no policies and procedures. And I remember I filed my first whistleblower report with the SEC by just sending them a letter <laughs> addressed to the whistleblower office. Um, now it's much more, there's a lot of policies and procedures now in place. There's an online system that you file them through. But I, I started doing this really from day one when the whistleblower office got set up. And since then, I've had cases that I've filed uh, with the CFTC as well, involving commodities and um, options trading. And again, I get calls and I say, I say, well, you know, you can do this, but let's talk about being, maybe you should be a whistleblower. Maybe you could not, we might not be able to get your money back from this Ponzi scheme or this situation, but maybe you could get an award by if you're first in the door. Um, and then I also have a case, um, probably the, one of the largest IRS whistleblower cases in the country involving a company called Washakie Renewable Energy here in Utah. Um, Washakie, uh, all those folks ended up going to prison. It involved members of the Kingston polygamist group here in Utah. And uh, the the whistleblowers in that case hired me a long time ago, so we filed that, that case as well. So I have some cases nationally that we've done. Um, I think what... What, it's just kind of been organic, friends. I, I, it's not like I'm uh, advertising much to do this. It's just that when people call a lawyer in Utah and they're looking for someone with this particular expertise in fraud, um, securities fraud in particular, then I, I've just started, I got those calls. They came to me. Um, I was with uh, the <clears throat> Utah law firm of Ray Quinney and Nebaker for 23 years. And then just in January of this year, I... Um, uh, left that firm finally after a long time and uh, um, went into started a firm with my um, partner and friend Brian Wood who's in Boston who also does a lot of these cases um, and it's called Pugsley Wood and we we are now whistleblower lawyers we're one of only really two uh, boutique law firms in the country that just does SEC whistleblower cases that's that's very very small niche practice that I do well, I, I imagine that's probably better for you to be independent because when you work for a firm like Ray Quinney and Nebaker, they re represent probably yes. every every corporation somewhere. So you'd have conflicts yes. in that firm. So hundred percent. Yeah. So you had to go on your own. Yeah. Separate from them to be able to take a lot of these cases on. I would assume. Yeah. There. Uh, yes. Um, I. Uh, one of my good friends is the whistleblower, just coincidentally, who um, alerted the world to the assets of the LDS church, the $100 billion um, stock portfolio that the LDS church has. And it then hit the the Washington Post. And he called me initially to kind of, with help, and I steered him away because of, but I did have a conflict in that case. I mm -hmm. My firm had represented the LDS church. So uh, I've, I've lost many cases that I wasn't able to file because of conflicts. And now we just do this one thing. So I'm kind of, it's a nice thing. Uh, we've had some good press lately. Uh, the Bloomberg wrote us up when we first started. Um, and the the hard part about being a whistleblower is that 
uh, a whistleblower lawyer, excuse me, and, and frankly being a whistleblower is that these cases take a long, long time. The, the, uh, by the time you, if you, let's just say hypothetically, if I alerted the SEC to a fraud scheme today, um, by the time it processes through the investigation, award, you know, indictments in some cases, and gets approved from an award, you know, I don't know what the averages are, but it's, it's probably six to eight years. So I don't see a penny on any case I file for at least six to eight years in the most in most cases. So it's a hard practice, you know. The we have to pay the bills and we have to figure out how to do it. But you know, I think no one. The reason there aren't any other law firms like ours is is because no one's dumb enough to to try to do it. <laughs> but but we've had great successes, and we represent. Um, we have hundreds of cases pending, and we represent. Uh, some big hedge funds in New York. We have uh, other cases that have been in the paper um, that are very exciting. And we're developing this niche practice where people who have knowledge and information about bad, bad conduct in the markets particularly, and we, we, we particularly like to represent people who are insiders who might have worked for you know some big company and have knowledge that they're cooking the books in some way. And, and those are the cases we like to do. I got a question, Mark. Talk about for those that aren't one hundred percent sure what the whistleblower uh, law means and what it's you know what does it say? It's part you said it was part of Dodd Frank that uh-huh. law that was passed. Yeah. What exactly is does that mean whistleblower in in terms of uh, fraud? And- so so the SEC uh, last year the number just came out this morning coincidentally. Um, uh, they get around 300 whistleblower tips per week, per mm-hmm. week. So thousands of tips per year. Um, they sift through those and they decide which of those merit um, investigation. And then not all investigations turn into litigation, but many of them do. And not all of them, you know, come to fruition that pay an award. So, um, Whistleblowers get paid. Uh, you can call it a bounty, or you could call it an award. I prefer to call it an award. It, it's not quite so mercenary, um, and it's intended to incentivize people with knowledge of fraud to come forward with that and to okay. to alert the, the the authorities. And the people usually that are in best that are best situated to do that are people who work in a large company, specifically a, a public company, who 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 know that something improper is taking place. Um, and so we <clears throat> we represent those folks, but not everyone gets an award. The, only, the way to get an award in this business is to bring um, information to the SEC that they like, that they, that they investigate, not in many cases they don't. I would say maybe one in eight of our cases gets picked up, so it's a, it's a tough business. And, but then even if it gets picked up, they have to actually collect. Um, sanctions, uh, uh, fines and penalties in excess of a million dollars before you even qualify for to get a penny. Okay. So then, if you do meet that threshold, um, then uh, then we bring uh, then then we file an application for an award, and the whistleblowers, depending on the level of cooperation, can get anywhere from fifteen to thirty percent of the money that's collected. Okay. So. Does that does that I yep. hope that answers your question? Yep, it does. So there's a lot of a lot of thresholds that have to be met. It has to be picked up. 
it has to get be significant enough to get significant fines and penalties. Many times the SEC will issue fines that are, you know, 100,000. Well, then that's that might sound great, but that's not good for us. Yeah. We 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 get nothing. So, we have to hope we we when we get calls on new cases, we like to get big cases. We like to have them involve publicly traded companies or at least very large companies, and we like them to be <coughs> we like to have clients who have inside information who are able to help the SEC in their investigation because the 15 to 30 percent, um, you know, that that's a subjective decision that the regulators make about how helpful was this person. So if the whistleblower was really helpful, we never would have been able to do this without you, then you'll get 30 percent. But if if, hey, we had five other people come in and they all, you know, gave us similar stuff and you were fifth in the door, you're not probably going to get anything. So there's a timing issue um, in, in Ponzi schemes in particular. Those are Ponzi's obviously I'm interested in too, but those are not involving public traded companies typically. But those are, you know, people are losing money by the day. Every day that goes by, there's more money that gets put into those and then it's going to be disappeared pretty soon. So those go faster but they're harder to get paid on because, frankly, a lot of times the money is gone. It's yeah. been paid out or it's been spent in Vegas or, or whatever else. So we get lots of different kinds of cases. And we, get case, we, we, we have cases involving PPP loans. Those are not whistleblower cases. There's no whistleblower program. that isn't. But, but the, <clears throat> the government is interested in those, and those are called key TAM cases, those are a little different type of case that we don't do very much of, but we do them now and then. And then we do um, IRS cases too, but those also are, are difficult for other reasons. So there's different types of cases. I'll, I'll give you an example. Here in Utah, uh, last year, there was a company called Vivint Smart Home oh, yeah. uh, that was fined $23 million. That was my case. I was the one that brought that to the DOJ. The problem is the DOJ... Um, and the FTC don't have whistleblower programs, so we didn't. We we had some satisfaction in bringing that case, but the FTC said thank you very much and have a nice day. And so, not all not all bad conduct will qualify for a whistleblower award. So, all day long I talk to people on the phone. In some cases, I we take, and some we don't. And some of them we just say, look, we. I agree there's a problem there. We'd like to help you. We can direct you to call, but we can't make money on that case, and so we, we have to turn those down. So yeah. this is the constant screening process that I do all day long. So for a company like uh, Theranos, which Elizabeth <laughs> Holmes was as, as a widely known yes. case of promising more than they can deliver, right? that one that company basically went bankrupt, and there wouldn't be anything there for you to recover, would there? Correct. Um, and in fact, uh, Erica Kelton is the lawyer who is in our bar association, and she represents the whistleblower who was, there are two whistleblowers, I believe, in that case, and one of them was in the movie. It was um, the son of Schultz, I think. Uh, uh, anyway, it was right, it was yeah. the grandson, actually, of one of the board members. Right. And he, he uh, I don't believe he's going to get any award. If, if he is, it's not going to be very significant unfortunately, because of the bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. So there's so much risk. That, and that was, if ever there was a case that the whistleblower should qualify, it's that one, right? Right. But because of the bankruptcy, because the SEC didn't collect a lot of money, there wasn't a lot of money left, um, he, 
that case is not going to be a good whistleblower case mm-hmm. at the end of the day. I, I, they might make some money. I just don't know enough about the, the details because I wasn't involved. But so, so, and we can talk a little bit about my case, which involves a company called Nikola, which is an um, um, electric vehicle manufacturing company. In that case, <clears throat> we filed in conjunction with a group out of New York called Hindenburg Research, which is an activist short seller. And because of that, <coughs> excuse me, um, it got a lot of press. Lost, most of our cases never see the light of day. Um, the SEC doesn't tell you when they get a whistleblower tip, right? So most of my clients work in obscurity. Even when they pay awards, they, they don't tell you who they're paying them to. And most of my cases, you will never know there was even a whistleblower involved. Hmm. So I don't talk about those cases because many of my clients don't want me to talk about them. In the case of Nikolai, I can talk about it because the clients in that case uh, decided to go public. And the same thing with the Washakie case. Those clients have decided to go public. They've been on American Greed. Um, my clients just did a, an episode of American Greed as well. And then they have the Bad Bets uh, Wall Street Journal podcast. And so it's kind of exciting. We get a little publicity instead of working in obscurity. You know, that's kind of fun. But, you know, the difference between Nikola and Theranos is Nikola hasn't filed bankruptcy. And in fact, they settled with the SEC for $125 million. So, and that money's been paid now. So we know that there will be a substantial, you know, 40, 40 plus million dollar award we expect for our clients in that case. Okay. So I actually went on to the, the Nikola website today and looked at their financial statements. Uh-huh. They're burning through cash like yeah. there's no tomorrow, so I'm glad you got paid. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Trevor Milton, who was just convicted in the criminal courts, uh, I was at that trial in New York a few weeks ago, and he uh, um, is going to be sentenced in January. I, uh, he'll, I'm sure he's going to appeal, but uh, he also has been sued by the SEC. So we're looking at the SEC case, which is on hold now. The SEC, once the, the criminal cases conclude, then the SEC will seek to either pursue it or a, a separate case. Most people don't know this, but the SEC cannot bring criminal charges. They, so it's going to be a civil it'll case. It'll be a civil case, okay. yes. Uh, criminal charges are only brought by the Department of Justice in the federal system. Will they go after his assets? Yeah, yeah, and, or he'll settle. I mean, okay. it remains to be seen. He seems to be quite a fighter. Any idea what his uh, stock is worth? What, what well, he's, he's by far the largest shareholder in the company, and they say he's still a billionaire even after the stock drops. And, and so it'll, it'll be interesting to see what he can come up with, but he's still worth quite a bit. I wonder if he sold any stock or sold Oh, tons. Yeah, yeah, yeah if you, quite you, a bit. Yeah. You can get on the SEC <laughs> on Edgar, and you'll see he's been selling it like, like crazy. And he's had a bunch of houses. He had this big... Thirty-six million dollar ranch up in Oakley. He had another one up in Woodland, up up uh, by the Provo River. That was an amazing house that um, he's trying to sell. So I think he's trying to liquidate, and presumably he will be uh, he will be uh, settling with we 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 assume with the SEC, and then we'll we'll watch that. Yeah, actually, the house is on the Weber River. That's up Smith Moore House. Oh, right, right. Yeah. That's that one house. But he has another one on the Provo River. Oh, does he? Yeah, but it's not, it's not as well known. It's oh. held through an LLC, and it, he, he was a little more sophisticated when he bought the second one. Okay. <clears throat> and he's got others. Well, that's he's got one in Turks and Caicos, we understand. 
Okay, so yeah. tracking down all the assets mm -hmm. then. That's not our job. Um, we The other hard part about being a whistleblower is that we don't have much control over the process. We have to hope that the SEC will be aggressive in pursuing assets, but the government does that. We're just kind of at the mercy of government investigators. If they don't collect, then we, we're out of luck. Um, I actually have a case out of California where you know, the fines and penalties were about $5 million. So my client in that case were, was very happy. Um, but the problem is these guys had squirreled it away or spent it or whatever, and the government was not able to collect very much. And so her award ended up being, you know, in, five, in the five figures, and she was quite disappointed. But it's kind of the nature of what we do. Like I said, it's a it's a ridiculous practice. No one in their right mind would do what I do. Because, you know, they, but if we hit one, it can be significant, right? Yeah. But, mm -hmm. but it's just very, very hard. And we, we have to depend on the government to, to, to pursue these cases. And if they don't, then there's not a heck of a lot we can do about it. Mm. Or if they say, or, or if there are multiple whistleblowers, which we will never know until they tell us. And all of a sudden, they'll, they'll tell us, oh, by the way, you weren't the only one. So you got to split it so with other... If, yeah. if they were significant in their input, then we have to split it. So there's so many ways that our cases can, can go south um, or, or just not end up being what they were. But I'm excited enough about it, and we have enough of a book of business that we've developed over the last 10 years, Brian and I, that I, I am excited about what we're doing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and all we... You know, if we hit one, it's usually significant. So, so we're excited. Um, yeah. But it's a it's a numbers game, and you know, we 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 um, get cases from. And I, just as a as a transition, a little bit from the you know, we a lot of our cases do come from investment advisors and stockbrokers, and we'll get tips all the time um, involving companies uh, locally and nationally that they see because you guys do due diligence on on companies, right? You're mm -hmm. You're, you're going to make a recommendation. You know that you have a duty to investigate a particular investment. And so you look into something and you might say, oh, you know, this is these, these numbers aren't right or they're not adding up. Or, and sorry, I, I'm just rambling oh, on. Feel free to stop me. But the other thing that I see a lot is I get calls from investment advisors who, <coughs> or, or Series 7 people who, um, have people that come in and want to... Um, uh, they want to uh, uh, liquidate a big portion of their 401k, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. You've seen this, I'm mm -hmm. sure, right, Brian? You've, you've got someone that shows up and they're like, hey, I've, I've got this 401k and I need to pull out half of it or, or even more in some cases, right? And you, you know, your, your antenna goes up and you say, well, what, what are you going to do? And they'll say, <clears throat> they'll say, well, I've got this this deal. It's this great deal that I, you know, I found. Or my neighbor told me about this great investment, and the returns are amazing. They're paying forty percent a year, or they're paying even thirty percent a year. And people, you know, hear something like that, and they're thinking, well, well, heck, uh, you know, my my RIA is only, you know, they're only making ten percent a year at most, and they're charging me a fee. Heck, I'm going to pull my money out of there, and I'm going to put it in this this deal from I heard from my neighbor. And I, my neighbor's a smart guy, and he, he probably has looked into it, so I'm not going to look into it. I'm just going to go. And I get calls from folks that I that I know in your industry all the time uh, who, who say, hey, something's happening. I've had now two people come to me or three people come to me and put all their money into 
you know, rest rare coin or, or whatever it is. And they're going all in and, uh, it's guaranteed. And, uh, it just doesn't sound right. And so we've had, we've definitely had cases that we've investigated like that. That, that just, uh, reminds me of, of so many times you hear, I've heard from clients from time to time and they tell me about Brian, what do you think about this? This is a, looks like a great opportunity. And, and, uh, what do you think about it? And, and they tell me the details, and I say, wow, that sounds really, really good, but too, too good, good to, to be, be true. true. <laughs> and almost without fit. Well, I can't. It's not almost. It's every always, time. Always. Always. It's there's something wrong. Yeah. It's usually a fraud or uh, <clears throat> a bad investment. I can think of this. We talked about it early before we started recording here about this Ponzi scheme up in Farmington. I don't want to mention names. <clears throat> because I actually talk about I have some, I have I would right. say I have a conflict of interest because I have some clients that were involved in mm-hmm. that, but uh, um, again, it was a case of the, what he was telling these clients or his clients was something that if I would have heard, I was a, absolutely too good to be true. But it was just it, it was just, just almost shred, believable, almost believable. For example. We can guarantee you 5% minimum annual returns capped at, uh, at 10%. So you, you can get up to 10, but a guaranteed minimum of 5%, never lose money. And right. some, and a lot of p- novice or retail investors would think, oh, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Sure, guarantees well, it, are great, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, exactly, guaranteed. But in an <laughs> environment that we've been in the last several years where we have near zero interest Struggled rates. Struggled to get 1%. Yeah. <laughs> to guarantee 5%, it's just not possible. Yeah. And even today with interest rates at 4%, you still can't guarantee 5%. You know, it just can't be done. And uh, so it's obvious to us in the industry, but a lot of times I think people hear this and say, that's not outrageous. In fact, I've had people tell me that. What they heard is doesn't seem outrageous, but when you really look at the facts, these are outrageous claims and if it sounds too good to be true, uh, almost 100% of the time it is. I've never seen one that was true. Yeah, I don't think I, I Well, they can make good returns in a good market, you know. Everybody right. can get lucky now and then, but to have guarantee, guarantees, I yeah. definitely, when I talk to people about red flags, that's one of the ones I talk about. Um, I'll tell you guys a story that's not well known. It involves a guy <clears throat> who, was a, who was licensed, and he was down in Nephi, Utah. And what he did is he, he had, uh, I think he was, you know, people ask me, do people go, do they intend to do this or does it just kind of morph into a Ponzi scheme in particular when I talk about Ponzi schemes? And this one was clearly fraudulent from day one. And what he did is he uh, had a bunch of his clients. And again, he was licensed. He was with a decent sized firm that I won't name, but, you know, you can look it up. And uh, he uh, told people that he had a, a basically a, a fund that he wanted to put them in that had some guaranteed returns of, I think it was 6% a year or 7%. And it's so great. And you're going to love it. And it's with a company called Franklin. And Franklin is a real company, right? I mean, there's, there's a company out there. And yeah. he actually, this is crazy, he, he actually got the paperwork for the Franklin uh, one of their annuities, uh, variable annuities, I think it was, and he had them fill out the paperwork. With It said Franklin right across the top. Well, what he did, 
this is so crazy. I'm, I'm telling you. He set up a trust at a local credit union called the Franklin Trust. And instead of doing an ACATS or a transfer form like you guys would do, you don't, you don't liquidate investments in no, order to put them in. in you kind. transfer them because you don't right. want to have a tax consequence, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's 101. Right. Well, what he told his clients, who were very unsophisticated, mostly rural folks, farmers, he said, well, I need you to liquidate everything and then write me a check and bring me the check. When you get the check from your, from your mutual fund company where you're, or your, wherever it is, Vanguard or whatever, you need to write me a check. And they did. And they wrote it to the Franklin Trust. But he had set himself up as the trustee. So once, once they deposited in the Franklin Trust bank account at a local small credit union that wasn't very sophisticated, I mean, he went to Vegas. Um, and, and he went, he, he kept it up for a while, um, but millions and millions of dollars were, were put into this great investment that he recommended to everyone, and it just was right down the tubes, and it was all gone. Um, so there, I've seen everything from Ponzi schemes that maybe started out as a reasonable investment, but just kind of, they, they paid returns. They weren't, the returns weren't tied to revenue. They were just paying everybody <laughs> the same amount and that's not sustainable, right? It's just not sustainable. You, you have to bear the risk and guarantees again, big red flag. Um, but I've also seen ones where people just steal, steal money. Um, so we've seen fake paperwork uh, early in my career. We had a case out of Vegas involving um, a very large wirehouse firm that everyone knows. And um, this woman back in the days of computers had decided to um, do mock uh, um, uh, statements. So she put the the bull, you know, on the statement and it and people were getting crazy great returns. Well, it was. She had rerouted. She'd send in a, a change of address form, so the real returns were coming to a PO box that she controlled, and then she was mailing them fake statements that showed that their returns were much higher. So, and eventually got caught. But but this is what I'm saying is that there's crazy stuff that happens well, all over the place. They always get caught eventually, you know. Eventually, and, and, and yeah, like, it's unsustainable. And it works until it doesn't work, right? You know, all these all these. People make money and make money and make money, and then suddenly it does not work. And right. I've never seen one that consistently worked. It works until it doesn't. Until work. it doesn't. It it's works usually... in a bull market, is what I see. Right. Yeah. 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 It, because they're like, oh, whoa, this is great. But then when the market turns, then they're like, oh, maybe I'm going to pull my money out and protect it. And so, you know, I'm going to go to cash because this seems a little sketchy anyway. And then, pe- you know, Ponzi schemes collapse very quickly. Have you seen anything in the cryptocurrency thing market yet? Yeah, I, I get calls all the time on crypto, and um, uh, in fact, some from people in my family <laughs> <laughs> who were part of this whole Voyager situation. And then this FTX. I mean, the, if you look at the date, I mean, FTX just blew up a few right. days ago, mm-hmm. um, and it just seems like the whole. It, I've been telling my brothers-in-law for a long time, you know, just stay away from crypto. Um, but they, of course, didn't listen to me, and now they've—they were all in the Voyager, and they—they've lost everything uh, that they had. Some of them, big, big numbers. So, I—I I get calls on those. The hard part about—but but how could you go after anything? I mean, well, those... this is the problem, and this is what I was just going to say: is that first of all, there's a jurisdictional issue that's going on right now between the SEC and the CFTC. They're kind of fighting it out about who even has jurisdiction over crypto because it's kind of what is it, right? What is it? Is it if it's an exchange? Is that is that uh, is that a 
SCFTC issue or a SEC issue. If, mm-hmm. if you're trading options in the one of these exchanges, does that now make it? Anyway, so there's jurisdictional issues. Uh, the government doesn't quite know what to do with them. The other problem it's is it's not really a security. It's not either. really security. It kind of is, but kind of isn't, although people began to treat it like one, and, mm-hmm. and some of them started to treat it like cash, right? So is it a treasury issue? I don't know. No one seems to know. The other problem is almost all of these companies are, are offshore. Mm-hmm. Um, the big companies initially, earlier in the crypto, you know, a few years ago, uh, there were wallets that were that people lost all of their coins because it wasn't secure, and then they wanted to go after this company in the British Virgin Islands. And I said, well, good luck, and you got to hire a guy in the British Virgin Islands because that's not, I can't do that. Um, and so there's that problem. And so we have definitely um, gotten a lot of calls from people who are victims, but the call we would rather get, which, which um, you know, I can't actually say one or the other whether we have cases like this, but the call that we would like to get is from the the IT guy at one of these companies, or the or the CFO, or the or one of the lower level auditors or, or, or accountants in the company, those are the guys that usually know what's going on and are able to come to the government earlier on. By the time it blows up and is in bankruptcy, then you know There's good no luck with that. Left. There's yeah. just nothing to do with that, from my perspective. I mean, certainly the bankruptcy court and the federal government might have might take action against some of these exchanges. I think. I think is Voyager. I think is is a U.S. company. There's others that are U.S. based, but you know, if the regulars decide to go after them, it's not the beneficiaries are not going to be the investors. Frankly, they're going to be probably if they get pennies on the dollar, they should be happy. Um, yeah. Bankruptcy is just terrible for everybody, mm-hmm. including yeah. me. So it's a, a very unique niche practice that 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 we do. Um, I still do. I still do a lot of securities disputes um, because I get calls on those, and it's something I've just done for a long time. Um, but really, we're just moving mostly into this whistleblower space. And so, when you fun. say securities disputes, are you talking about arbitration that you're going yeah, into? Yeah, yeah. I've done. I've I've done a ton of FINRA arbitrations. Um, sometimes uh, uh, SEC enforcement. I've done that most of my career. FINRA. Finner disciplinary cases, stuff like that. Um, a lot of times, just customers who who are unhappy with their broker. I I, have, I represent those people. I mean, I'm in Utah. I'm not in California. I'm not in Florida. I'm not in New York. So I I've done a lot of wide variety of cases. Okay. You mentioned that uh, usually these problems come to surface when the markets are under turmoil or down. Huh. You think about uh, Bernie Madoff. I mean, when that came out, it was during the financial, you know, at the tail end of the financial crisis, when that kind of blew up, you know, markets were down significantly. People were asking for redemptions. He couldn't make redemptions, and, and then it became came to light. And you think about right now with uh, uh, Bitcoin and uh, FTX and what happened there, you know, it was under turmoil. The markets have been under turmoil this year, and I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, in the future, I think there's going to be a lot more come to light fraud, yeah, uh, Ponzi schemes, things like just in this last week with FTX and this uh, SBF guy, mm-hmm. the Sam Bankman Friedman. Bankman Friedman, yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. It, he went from a $28 billion net worth on Friday to, they say he's worth zero today. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth yeah. nothing just in the days. He'll be lucky to stay out it's of prison. It's crazy. It reminds me of the quote that you'd hear from Warren Buffett. He says, when the tide goes out, you, you recognize yep. or see who's not wearing swimsuits. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, back when I started the business, I started in the business in 1985. And then late in the, and the firm I went to work for was a big wirehouse at the time. Uh, since they've been absorbed, the hell they merge, all the brokerage firms merge and merge and split and merge. But anyway, this firm had a, re- every month it would post the top producers in the brokerage firm from our office and the Provo office and so forth. And this was the goal. You want to be one of the top producers. They don't care about your clients. They did not care how your clients were doing, but they were glad that you were producing commissions for the firm. And there's this one uh, broker in one of the Provo offices that was always at the top of the list, Mm. always at the top of the list. He had a big customer, which was one of the publicly traded companies, one of the early computer technology companies in Utah, where he had the the corporate cash account. And the treasurer of the this company thought that he was putting his money into, like, commercial paper. But what this broker was doing was to, putting it into long-term 12B1 funds. Yeah. And as long as interest rates did not go up, he was golden. <laughs> but at that point in time, we had a spike in interest rates. The value of that 12B1 fund went down because, of course... And I tell this all the time. People think that bonds are safe. Bonds are not safe. And especially if it's in a mutual fund because you can't wait to maturity to get your money back. Anyway, the treasurer of this company started calling him up, saying, what's going on? The account value is going down. This is supposed to be in commercial paper, Mm -hmm. treasuries, secure investments. This This is payroll money. This is not speculative money. And he just blew him off. Finally, he went down to his office, and what this broker did is go out, get in his car, and disappeared. They did catch up with him several years later in Arizona, and he did eventually go to prison. And the firm made good on the losses for this company. But, again, it it works until it doesn't work. My first case was uh, representing... My law firm in California represented Merrill Lynch in the Orange County bankruptcy. Not that different than what you just described. They were in, they thought they were in safety. They were in derivatives. When they went south, they went south fast. And the whole county filed bankruptcy. You remember that Mm -hmm. story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell you one other war story, just since your audience, I assume, is mostly licensed folks. Or wanting to be licensed. Or wanting to be licensed. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... This is a thing that I see a lot in Utah. And again, I'm not sure if this is a national issue or not, but I see a lot of Series 6 people holding themselves out as retirement advisors, financial planners. You know, there's certain words that you can use and, and without crossing the line, right? Mm-hmm. And these are Series 6 people, not Series 7. Most people wouldn't know the difference, but your audience right. would know. Mm-hmm. So, so the advice I have for those folks is stay in your lane. If you're going to start getting people into, if you want to make higher commissions, if you want to get people into more, more into variable stuff, even in insurance, or if you want to start getting people into other types of investments, then get a license. Because what happens, and I see this a lot, and, the, and there's one group here in Utah that was doing this, um, and they've all... This is public record. These folks have most, all of them have been disciplined by the SEC and the, the state is that they were all, they were insurance guys with, some of them had a series six. Some of them didn't even have that. They were just insurance guys, but they held themselves out as being what they called wealth architects. 
is a great creative name. <laughs> well, people came to them and, and they realized, hey, you know, there's these investments that we have access to that are paying a better return. And, and we want to put people into whole life products that pay these very high commissions. But we the problem is most people don't want to pay those commissions. So here's a here's an idea. We'll do what 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 is actually illegal, but they did a bundle. So they would put people into an investment that they thought they didn't have to be licensed to sell wrong. Um, and the and the returns from that investment were gonna pay the premiums. So hey, win win, right? I'm gonna put I'm gonna you liquidate your 401k, I'm gonna put it all into this really awesome investment that pays a guaranteed rate and then that'll pay the premium every year and you won't have to come up with the cash. Sounds great, right? Sounds great. <laughs> well, the problem is because they weren't licensed, they weren't, many of them not even Series 6, but they definitely weren't Series 7. Some of them had been, but they just didn't do the due diligence on these outside investments that they were using that they thought were non-licensed products. But in fact, they should have been licensed. And in fact, both of them ended up being Ponzi schemes. Mm. One of them is called Woodbridge. It's out of California. Huge Huge uh, receivership, and another one um, involved, you know, factoring uh, pensions, uh, uh, and uh, which is also not proper. But that got shut down by the government because it was what what they were doing wasn't right. And these guys sold millions and millions of dollars of these products to their clients, and then in the process got a lot of money from their uh, commissions from both products. They mm-hmm. took commission on the on the investment that they thought was a non, you don't need to be licensed. And they took another um, uh, commission on the whole life policy, which is huge. And uh, it all blew up. And most of those folks have now been disciplined by the SEC and the CFD uh, and the, and FINRA and the state. So they're in a world of hurt, but um, they're still out there advertising. Mm. Um, Still out there in business. Yes. Yes. They're still out there in business. And, uh, so I think this is a problem I see where people are trying to, they don't have the proper licensure or they don't do proper due diligence on some deal. I mean, these were guys that were holding themselves out as experts in financial planning and they're putting people into Ponzi schemes. You know, why? Well, because the commissions were high and they didn't know how to vet the company. I mean, it, 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 all it took was a Google search on in one of these companies. They would have found that they've been shut down by three state governments and, and you know, in more to come. It, it was a terrible idea. So this is something I see a lot, is people getting out of their lane. If you, if you want to sell that stuff, get a license. Yeah. Uh, because one of the things when, when I have folks come to me um, who have been victimized in some way or who have lost their money, um, one of the things I tell them is, well, you know, do they have a license? Because if they do, then... Most likely, their firm or their their clearing ha- firm or whatever or their is going to have some insurance that can help you recover your money. But if not, if they're just random insurance salesmen, this was this would be potentially not covered. And so, anyway, I I think it's really important that people do business with licensed people that have the proper license to sell the product that they're pitching. Uh, that's and I'm speaking to the choir here, but. Yep. But this is this is really a, something I see quite a bit, especially here in Utah. I got a question. What if your neighbor approaches you and says that uh, he's had a lot of success managing his investments? And I think the last few years, up until this year, 
everybody can kind of see that like oh it's been easy it's easy. I'm, I'm a genius <laughs> and and uh but what if your neighbor comes up to you and says hey i can i've been doing great i can manage your money for you um, where do you draw the line? I mean, can could could your neighbor do that? What if he's not charging you fees? I mean, what's where do you draw the line? What's legal and what's not? So that's tough. Um, the one I see the most, the type of situation like that that I've seen the most, and maybe it's just me, uh, is uh, people who have developed some sort of algorithm for the commodities markets or or forex in some cases, foreign exchange or commodities. That's where I see this, and people will come to me and they'll say, hey. You know, he was my neighbor. He had been doing it. He, he showed me his returns. I saw two years worth of printed out spreadsheets, which, by the way, means nothing. Mm-hmm. Anybody can create a yeah, spreadsheet, Yeah, anyone can right? make a spreadsheet and show good returns. But, oh, look, I've looked at all of his returns, and they're just fabulous. He's never had a down month. That's, that's always what I hear. He never had a down month, guaranteed, or not even if it's not guaranteed. The, the one thing that I would say is there... there is a way to do this. And then in, if you know the commodities markets, there are exchanges out there that will let you <clears throat> have your own account, but you can turn on someone's algorithm that is developed. You can, you can actually buy access to an algorithm that trades options, for instance, or commodities. Those are out there. And as long as what, what you don't ever want to do is give them your money. This is what I always <laughs> tell people. Just you, look, if you can bear the market losses, you know, you're taking risk. You know, I don't I'm not going to tell you that the that the spread eagle, you know, whatever the the con, iron condor. I'm not going to give you advice about whether the iron condor is a safe investment or not. You know, who the hell knows? But I am going to tell you that when you give your money to someone and, and he puts that in his account, you're you are playing with fire. If you if there's a way to set this up, if his trading trading scheme is so great, then open an account and and let let you know you take his his market trades or his advice. His advice, yeah, which is illegal. But but you know if you're going to do it, just don't give him your money because that's where I really (laughs) see the problem. But they and also use money that you can afford to lose. Don't don't go all in, you know, because there's up markets and down markets and certain spreads. I've seen people trading. I've had cases involving really people were swore on the Bible that this spread that they were doing, this position was fully hedged and there was no way that it could ever lose beyond a certain, you know, the, your max out of pocket is X amount. And I've seen those blow up. And so so if you're going to trade commodities, if you're going to trade Ford Exchange, you know, First thing I'd say is don't. But second of all, if you insist, you know, just use money you can lose and, and don't give it to them. Mm-hmm. Just put it in your own account, which which is not that hard to do now. Um, but overall, the the thing that I see is is that a lot of people, and this may be a Utah unique issue, but there's a lot of people that will just steal it. You know, I mean, they will take the money and say that they're doing X, Y, and Z, and then really they're, you know, going to Vegas. I, I mean, I actually had a case where he was going to Vegas every week, thought he was good enough to generate the returns that he could pay people returns. Their money was never in the stock market, but they were told it was. And, and you well, know. that's sort of what Bernie Madoff did. Yes. I mean, he never put the money in the market. Yeah, it was just a big Ponzi scheme, yeah. and those blow up. And yeah. one of my clients is actually a guy named Harry Markopoulos, who is the guy who tried to alert the whistle tried to be a whistleblower before there was such a thing mm-hmm. the SEC didn't listen to him they just ignored him they just ignored him so 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 harry has been on a you know the speaking circuit for years trying to help people avoid these kind of situations um you know but 
the problem is human nature is such that if you have a friend who you, you trust... You want to believe. Yes, yes. And People want to believe. The other thing right. is that if the... If you guys offer someone a, a 5%, you know, this is generally paying 3 to 5%, it's like, eh, should give me the prospectus, you know, right? People are, they're going to look at it. But then someone offers them 20% a year or 30%, and for whatever reason, I mean, I don't get it. But you should be asking more questions. But they ask less. They, they, it's like their brain falls out of their head because they just don't the want to lose the opportunity. They don't want, they see this opportunity, they think, well, it may be sketchy, but if I get in and get out, then I'll be okay. You know, I'm going to be the first one out. Well, you're not. Guess what? In a Ponzi scheme, this is not new information, but if you've never been in a Ponzi scheme, you might not know this. When the SEC imposes a receivership, who do they go after? They go after the people that took their money out. The winners get sued in what's called a clawback case. So even if you think it's sketchy, but if you can get in and get your money out quick, you're still going to get sued when it blows up. If it's fake, it's fake. I'm sorry, you are still going to be a loser. Um, so it's it's a really bad idea to get involved in anything where the returns, going back to your point, right? I mean, it's like, if if it sounds too good to be true, I promise you, it is. Yeah. Um, number one piece of advice I ever give to people is that. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that people, it's so easy to tell somebody, hey, we can get 20%, and they're like, sign me up. Yeah. Sign yeah. me up, or 25%. Yeah. But if you tell them, well... We're going to get you 3% for dividends. Yeah. And yeah. Show me the perspective. Yeah. Show me the perspective. <laughs> what, are, what are the fees? Who are their managers? You know, all that stuff. And it's like, well, no, that's the opposite. You should be paying much more attention to the high return offers. But it doesn't work that way. It's just human nature, but and I don't get it. This 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 guy up, up uh, in northern Utah that... Uh, just recently came to light that there was a Ponzi scheme. I mean, his, it wasn't the 20%, it was the 5%. And he attracted a lot of money. And guess what? <clears throat> he did show him a, a, a prospectus, but he altered it. Uh. He doctored it up. He used PIMCO. He used a PIMCO uh, prospectus. And he was able to, with technology, able Copy to put you know his logo it. on there. And through half the, pr I looked at the prospectus. This is before it came to light, mm. and I looked at the prospectus. I had some people forward me the prospectus, and I, and uh, he was doctored the font it. different. Could he, you tell? Well, he put his own logo right under uh. Pimco, <laughs> right under a Pimco logo, which they don't do. And I'm like, I've never heard of this company. I'm very familiar with Pimco, and throughout the whole prospectus, he continued to doctor it about halfway through. You know, most prospectuses are 300 pages. Mm -hmm. Well, he got tired about page 70. <laughs> and I looked, and I kept looking after page 70, uh -huh. and it wasn't doctored after that. And I said, wait a minute, what I, happened? What was he doctoring, the returns? He was doctoring. Taking the name PIMCO out and putting his firm in? What, there were, you know, this, this particular report had seven different funds or seven or eight different funds under this same prospectus. And one of those funds was the one that he was associated with, and it was co-branded with PIMCO, and he was putting his name of his fund with alongside PIMCO. Huh. And then he quit doing it on page about 80. <laughs> and, I, and when I read that, I thought, wait a minute, this is for sure fraud. Something's going on here. Well, and that guy was licensed, right? And he was licensed. He was affiliated. He was he a was, registered investment advisor. He was, he was not a broker. He was not a serious I think he might have had, he might have been. I know the story. I've heard the story. Yeah, so. I think he was, he might have been Series 7 mm. licensed as well, but he was affiliated with a broker, or with a registered investment advisor. 
and not a very big one, unfortunately. No, it was a small. Yeah, and a small he dude. committed suicide for people that want to know. I mean, he's yeah. now, he, he when it all came to light, he committed suicide, and that's when everybody realized they were in a problem, oh, had a problem, and now the question from a lawyer's perspective is, okay, I'm going to look to that firm that he would have worked with now because they clearly didn't supervise him sufficiently, um, and they better have a damn good insurance policy. What happened uh, from my, I don't know which happened first, the chicken or the egg, but um, he was fired from this registered investment advisor the same day he committed suicide mm. for undisclosed outside business activities. Mm -hmm. So he was doing outside business from this from this advisor. Selling away. He was selling, selling away. away. He yeah. was selling away. And uh, once they, I don't know, you know, they found out and fired him or he re recognized that that the, the gig was up and uh, says, like, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm checking out. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know which happened first. I'm How sure young we'll, was we'll he? find out. Was How? he in his 40s, 50s? I think he was in his early 50s. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, that's maybe sad. maybe late forties. Yeah. Nothing's worth the uh, no amount of money is worth it. I mean, no, I don't. I, I just I see these people are doing. And I say, why why are you yeah. going down this path? It's going to come yeah. back to you eventually. There's no way. Yeah, exactly. I don't understand how, for example, Bernie Madoff. You mentioned from day one he was a he was a he's a crook. Yeah, mm -hmm. and this this guy particularly, I, I think from day one he was a fraud. I for a while I was thinking. Because uh, I was doing a little bit of investigation myself before it came out. Did I, you keep your client out of it? Well, they but, became clients after, unfortunately. Okay, okay. Uh, that's too bad. Too late. And, uh, and, uh, but I was thinking, well, maybe he started with good intentions, thinking that he could generate the kind of returns that he was promising these people. And then when the tide went out, realized he couldn't do it. But it doesn't look like that's what he was doing. He was I think always he started a, out from day one as a fraud. Well, if you're doctoring prospectuses, yeah, that's, yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty clear, right? Yeah. Yeah. This guy that I told you down in Nephi, he was, you know, like I said, he had set up this trust from day one in the bank so that he could deposit these checks. The insidious part of that one was that he was, because it's a small town, he wasn't only the like the only stockbroker in town. He was also a tax preparer, and so. Of course, they all got these tax bills when they had liquidated their entire <laughs> retirement <laughs> accounts, and they came to him. And they said, "What? You know, well, look at this." And he's like, "Oh God, the, the IRS. They let me file you let an me amended fix return. That for you. Yeah. Don't worry, I've got it. I'm going to straighten them out. They don't know what they're doing. I will take care of it." But it was starting to crumble, um, and then and then um, he would. He was very manipulative about um, religion. They all went to the same congregation and he would go to their homes and really endeared himself to, himself to their families. Um, and when things started to go south, he would go to their house and, and, and say, we need to pray together. So he would, he was, he used, and this is something we see throughout the United States, but especially in Utah where people are very manipulative about um, the religion, their, their religion they have in common. And as you would expect, that typically here is the LDS religion, but in you know this happens everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I would before we let you go. I mean, I don't know how long we're going to go, no. but I want to make sure that we talk about warning signs. You know, what? How do you avoid this situation? These kind of things. I mean, I have my own ideas, but I would like to hear from your perspective. How do we 
you know, warn people that don't get caught up in these sort of things? And what are the warning signs? And how can you avoid, you know, this happening to, to, to family and friends? Yeah. And, you know, I have my own ideas about some of these things. And, and you probably have the same ideas I do. I yeah. mean, you guys have been doing this for a long time. You've seen this. Uh, I would say that I, there's really two answers in my mind to this question. One is what can you guys do as, as licensed people? You guys are investment advisors the biggest red flag from your perspective is usually someone will come in and something is so good they want to go all in mm -hmm. and they want to liquidate either all or a substantial portion of their retirement, which is nicely diversified because you guys know what you're doing. You've got it all over. You've got it spread out. You've got sub-advisors, whatever it is you're doing. And and then they want to put it, they want to liquidate a million dollars or or whatever it is and put it all in this one thing. And so you Obviously, you've got all sorts of alarm bells going off when people say that because they're losing diversification is one reason. Yeah. I mean, just as that, as that on that basic level. Yeah. And second of all, well, what is it and who are the people? So, but, but on a different level, and I'll talk about just what I tell people who are lay people, you know. And because I tell people that are younger, I say, you know, I, I point to myself, but I'm really not younger anymore. But... Um, <laughs> I, I like to think I am. I say that you, you guys have an, a vested interest in making sure your parents don't get into a scam like this because guess what? That's your inheritance. Mm -hmm. And you need to keep an eye on what they're doing because elderly folks are particularly vulnerable to these situations and especially um, those who are losing their mental acuity in some way. You guys mm -hmm. deal with this. And it's hard anyway. And I say, but then, but then when you have a parent who doesn't really understand that they're becoming maybe, well, even if they're fully all there, I don't care. They still are vulnerable to these things. And I, the main thing that I say is, you know, get the paperwork. This is, seems so basic. You guys, paperwork, you know, you guys give out prospectuses all day long. Um, well, most of these investments are not public. So it's going to be, is there a private placement memorandum? Have you seen it? Are have they, you got a they, copy of it? Are they an accredited? Are they invested? accredited? Have right. you have you uh, are your parents accredited? Are they sophisticated in some way? That's the first thing because you'd be amazed in how many of these situations there's no paperwork or it's it's or it's a shake of a hand or it's like a two-page investment contract or something which you cannot do. You guys understand this, you have to have a private investment requires a PPM. You have to have it or else you're violating securities laws. You can't just give them a contract or, or some of them try to use a promissory note to get around, you know, oh, here's my paperwork. It's a prom note. No, that's not sufficient. You're still selling securities if you're selling it to multiple people, right? So paperwork is critical. Um, you guys can review paperwork. You know what you're doing. But if you want, get one of the corporate lawyers in town. Um, you've probably got friends who are, who are good lawyers who know how to read and ask them to take a look at it or, or refer your clients to them. Say, you know what? I, this is a lot of money. I really have, I have this friend who's a lawyer, have him review the paperwork and see, um, have him pull, uh, lawyers can do things, they can pull uh, their names, they can do background searches uh, through Lexis or Westlaw, you can pull litigation history, has this person been sued, has this person had any history with the SEC, pull a broker check, you guys can pull a broker check, mm -hmm. if there's no broker check, well then that's a problem, if their name doesn't show up, <laughs> that's that's a red flag right there. Um, there's so much out there now in this day and age of the internet that you can do from your desktop, looking at court dockets, looking at uh, just doing searching people's name. I've told told people there was a guy in in our our state who 
had been convicted twice of securities fraud. He had been in prison twice, and he was still doing it. He came out, and he just right at it. Well, those people didn't need to do much. They only had to Google his name. In the very first, <laughs> the very first thing they would have seen was this guy had been in prison for a securities fraud. Okay, that's a red flag. I'm sorry, but that is a big red flag. So just Googling the person's name who's, who's, who's offering it, that's yeah. a, a no-brainer, right? The Division of Securities puts out all, the, all their final orders. They're all out on the Internet. They're easy to find. Um, the other one that I always tell people to do is to, um, <clears throat> you know, understand accreditation. You guys, it's something you guys deal with all the time, but most people don't understand it. They don't understand what constitutes an accredited investor. Um, what, what sort of, if, if it's not registered, is there an exemption? Are they doing it properly? Uh, let's see their financials. If they're a small company and they claim that they've had three good years, okay, show me your financials. Are they audited um, or not? Right. These are basic questions that if it's a legitimate investment, unless it's a brand new company, which in which case, you know, I would say don't do that regardless. But any company with a decent history who's legitimate can provide you with with accredited financials at the very least, in addition with a private placement memorandum that has, you know, that describes properly what the risks, All the are, risks and, are and the background of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, people often get a PPM and they say thank you and they put it in the drawer. No, read it. Because there's going to be a, a section in there about litigation. Are they involved in litigation currently? There's going to be a section in there about who the, who the managers, officers, and directors are. What is their background? Have they had any disciplinary history? There's all sorts of things you can do um, if there's paperwork. But crazy enough, you know, I've, I've seen so many cases where people will hand over a check for 200000 on a handshake. Yeah. I see that all the time. In this case we were talking <clears throat> earlier, um, if they would have just... Like you said, Google or down a broker. It's called broker check. You can just type in Google broker check and then the name, and, and there will be a search bar, and you can search him. But another red flag for me is when you see a broker or an advisor that's changing firms a lot. Mm-hmm. In this case that we are talking about earlier, in the, the last five years, he's probably changed firms like three or four times. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a red flag yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I, I think that often – um, in the case of Bernie Madoff, he generated his own statements. Mm-hmm. There was no third-party outside verification of where the assets were. You were relying upon him in, in the case of Bernie Madoff, but in the case of this firm, this situation I'm talking about, Northern Utah, same kind of deal. He was generating his own statements. There was no third-party Schwab or TD Ameritrade or Fidelity or Merrill Lynch or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you can actually see where your money is. You get an accounting from a third party. This is where my money's at. Now, there's all there's outside investments and people. I see people take their IRA money and invest in real estate. Well, you better trust. If you're doing it, if you're doing that, you better trust where your money's going and it's going to go into the project you think it is. Um, and uh, there's. They can get around, and you better you better be sure, like you're saying, double check the financials, double check you know who you're dealing with, make sure that they're honest and they have a, a track record of. There, there was a case in Utah a, a few years back involving a third party IRA administrator, where they even that guy stole the money. I don't know if you remember this case, and um, so even that, I, I always feel like people um, are. 
playing with fire when they put IRA money into a, a self-managed kind of situation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people want to do it, especially with real estate. I, I, I get it. Um, but But at the same time, you know, I just really believe that people should understand, need to understand that licensure is there for a reason. The reason people need to have the proper licenses is so that the government has oversight and so that they're, you know, that they're following the rules. They've mm-hmm. got they've got a a, a, a manager, uh, the either a regional manager or or a you know, if they're an OSC, you know, then they they've got whatever oversight that is required. They have money behind them. They have insurance policies. And anytime you're going with you know Dave down the road, you're it's just super risky. And 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 unfortunately, people. Um, don't get that message very often. I, I wish they would, but yeah. it, it's a real problem. Uh, on a public company, <clears throat> okay, I, I go back many years, and there was a company here in Utah called Bonneville Pacific, which was a which was basically um, buying and selling independent power projects, buying from a, an affiliated, selling back to themselves, and booking profits, which mm-hmm. were illusory. And this was a publicly traded company. The company ended up going bankrupt. Because it was basically fraud. Uh, but what I looked at on that company and I always look at now is the board of directors. Who are mm. the board of directors made up of? Is it mm-hmm. people that actually understand the industry or is it politicians? And this mm-hmm. one had a lot of politicians. Mm-hmm. If you have social, uh, social, uh, what is it, what, uh, influencers on the board of directors that's not necessarily a good thing so you know companies that have a board of directors and you saw this with theranos too did they have any uh biomedical engineers on theranos's board no they had uh schultz and all these other people Mm -hmm. that were on the board politicians exactly that that don't have any expertise in the business or the industry that they're in no one to ask tough questions right no one to ask the tough questions you know the the company I uh, recently have been in the news about in Nikola, you know, it had just gone public through a SPAC. Mm-hmm. And SPACs obviously have all sorts of issues. There's no, they can immediately trade the stock. That's ought to be a red flag. If you, you know, if you'd looked, you'd seen that the, the CEO was trading like the day he could. The minute it went public, he was selling and, you know, buying multi-million dollar ranches like within days. Um, and so what, what was what was it in that case when we put together our report and you know the bad bets podcast goes into great detail about how we put together the reports but there the one thing i tell people that was really crazy to me in that process when we had this team and we're researching everything is i remember one day i got a message from one of our team members and he said the guy in charge of hydrogen is his brother and he was like the worldwide hydrogen you know uh, guy, right? Expert, yeah. Hugely complex scientific area, by the way. I mean, producing hydrogen is complicated, it's expensive, and then rolling it out to gas stations throughout the United States so that these trucks could refuel would have been a, just, a, just a, a, a monumental undertaking, like hugely complex. Well, the guy that was in charge of that was Trevor Milton's brother, whose job immediately prior was pouring concrete. <laughs> now, I'm sorry. Guess how we found that? We figured that out through LinkedIn. It wasn't rocket science. We just Googled the guy's name on LinkedIn. That was it. If anyone 
of those millions of investors in that company could have found that information and it should have set off a bunch of red flags. They haven't got, they've got a guy in a scientific position who's not a scientist, who's a concrete guy. Well, that was not hard to figure out. The, we found out that they, they had claimed publicly, repeatedly, that they had um, how many gigawatts of solar power on the roof of their building. Well, guess how we found out that wasn't true? We used Google Earth. So how many solar panels were we, there? We, you, you, we, <laughs> we looked at the company on the building on Google Earth and had no solar powers on power. No, not solar. a single solar panel on the roof. So, like, like I said, um, people, I think, have a tendency to hurry into these things. It's, a mis it's an opportunity. I got to jump. You got to move fast. The, the perpetrators of these frauds, um, especially Ponzi schemes, they usually have an urgency. And this is another thing I tell people. And I've, I, I, I need to start writing in. I've, I've run a, wrote a blog for years, but it's kind of, since I left my firm, it's disappeared somewhere into the internet. But um, I have a list of the top 10 red flags or ways to, things to look at. And I'll, I can send that to you. But it's, one of the other ones was slow it down. Because a lot of these guys, they want to go, you know, hey, this opportunity, you got to get in or else it's gone. We're going to fill up this tranche. You better hurry. And yep. so and so, um, people, oh, oh, you know, I don't have time to do the due diligence. Well, come on. You have time to sit down with a lawyer. You have, this is a lot of money. You're, asked, you're talking about your retirement here. Don't just, don't just fritter that away on a, on a whim. You know, this is a lot of money and you need to do your due diligence on it and make sure that what it says is true and in all these things you can do take time and and so anyway at the time i mean the last couple of years is crazy it reminds me the the mania and the um, enthusiasm for making money we talked about SPACs and meme stocks and mm -hmm. remind you know Franz and I you and I've been in the business long Crypto. enough we remember <laughs> we remember the dot-com era mm -hmm. and how crazy it got and then and then after COVID and it just got crazy we talk about SPACs and memes and everybody was so in, uh, in a rush to get that next stock the next Tesla mm -hmm. um, and guess what Nikola was I remember it was the next Tesla. Yes. Everybody kept talking about how this is going to be the next Tesla. And, of course, you know, we've, we've seen these kind of things so many times over the years. And it's, it's good advice. You step back and say, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? Because at some point, we don't know when, but at some point, reality will come back. The problem with that, Brian, is the market goes so far in one direction mm -hmm. that you lose patience. Everyone instead wants to of being instead be of being an early investor in and, Tesla, right? That's yeah. what you want to be is the yeah. early investor, yeah. right? And it moves well, they quick. thought they were getting those yeah. exactly, yeah. but but I remember I go way back. I remember when the Nifty Fifty was the cool place to be. Yeah. I don't mm -hmm. think hardly any of those companies even exist anymore, <laughs> except for maybe IBM. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I remember back in Utah, we had the blind pool, the penny stock blind pool, which is the same thing as an SPV. Mm -hmm. It was just predated the SPVs, but it was exactly the same thing. We're going to put some money into this shell, and you know what? The people of this shell are, are going to put a real company into it, and if you're early in the shell, it mm -hmm. goes from $0.05 cents a share to $1.50 a share, and it was always at that level. But that was in Utah, and Utah was famous for that. Famous. Well, yeah. what And how is crypto any different yeah. if you think about it? It's the greater fool theory. Everybody's <laughs> neighbor, only this is hitting my kid's age, right? Mm -hmm. I have kids that are in their 20s. And they, all their friends are made all this money in crypto. I know how to get into crypto. Well, how are you going to, 
I said to him, well, what, how are you going to invest? You have no money. He said, well, I got a credit card. I said, no, no, no. You're absolutely not using your credit card <laughs> to buy crypto. Well, but my friend has made so much money so fast. Not anymore. And I said, well, can you explain <laughs> to me how that money was generated? Where did those profits come? Can you explain to me how crypto increases in value? They can't because they don't understand it. Now, I think it's, it's mostly because it's just a market. There's just It's just a market, and there's market demand. That's it. There is no fundamental. There's nothing that is generating revenue nope. in that situation, unlike you know any other company. A company at least, that actually at least you makes can, a product and right. sells a product. Right. I always call it, I said right from the beginning, it's just the greater fool theory. Yeah. There has to be a fool greater yeah. than you willing to pay more for that cryptocurrency than you did. Yeah. There's no intent... Tangible value in that cryptocurrency. Right. There's right. nothing there. You can't value it. Yeah, no. you can't value it. It's going to be the next. So what's uh, it currency. worth? Okay, is it whatever worth a penny? anybody was willing is it to worth pay a penny for. Or is it's intrinsic value. Yeah. There is none. There's none. Yeah. So and and that's coming home to roost, right? All all of us old guys that gave that bad bad advice to the kids and just they didn't like fogies. it. Yeah, just we're just old fogies, and you're behind the times, and this is the latest thing. Well, okay, you now what do you have to say about it? You know, yeah. and I I, I don't want to. Say told you so, but I kind of told you so. Yeah, this yeah. that we've all done it. Well, you, we're going to see more of these. these this is not the only one. We're going to have no, another one in five years. It's yes. going to be the next greatest thing, and, yes. and it's going to still be the same thing. Nothing to value. It's this, going to just be a greater fool. That yeah, goes and the crypto fallout is just still just going just on. Barely starting. Yeah. Oh, it's. Just I think starting. it's going to continue. And it's going to be so ugly. It's There's going to be so much, yeah. so much wealth that's <laughs> going to be lost in the next few months. I, I mean, I do think blockchain has value. I think there's something yeah. there, but that's not the same. Blockchain right. and no, crypto blockchain are not the same. blockchain is a block ledger. That's a yes. whole different thing, whole than, different a, thing. than a currency. Yeah. So, yeah. All these things are out there. It's a pattern that you, all of us have seen over the years in it over and over and over. We can go back, you know, going back to Bonneville Pacific. My grandfather, by the way, worked on that case. I come from a long line of lawyers, and, and, and my grandfather and my father both worked on that case. It was a huge case. Every lawyer it was, was a big on case. it in yeah. town. And, and they and also hired almost every law firm when they, they were in business, they too, did. so they couldn't have, confl so they have conflict right. of interest. <laughs> <laughs> they did. It was a full employment act. And there are others. You know, I mean, the Rust Coin case here in Utah is a Ponzi, and, you know, there's a firm in town that's handling that, and they're doing a fantastic job. But, you know, I mean, it's gone for like five years now. Yeah. Five years. And no one, I don't think the investors have seen a penny yet. So, so none of these things are good. You don't want to be caught up in one of these situations because there's just no good outcome. Yeah. Um, and so I, I hope people, the fundamentals are called that for a reason, and we all preach that, but um, it's hard sometimes. It's hard. If you don't understand what you're investing in, don't stay do it. Away. Yeah, don't stay do away. it. Just yeah. stay the heck away yeah. from it. I, I just, I, you know, that, that, that advice was good for me because years ago, one of my clients called me up and said, Franz, I want to buy Enron. Take a look at Enron and let me know about this. And I and I went and looked at their financial mm. statements, and I looked at it, and I looked at it, and I finally told them, I said, I can't figure out how they make money. Mm. So I'm not going to buy it. And, mm -hmm. you know, bullet Good bullet thing. dodged. Yeah. That's all it is. You yeah. know, I didn't – I wasn't smart. I couldn't tell you what it was, but I could not understand how they made money. I, just, I remember Enron. I was in the business at the time, and I remember looking at their financials and thinking – Man, this company just—they—they they were perfect every quarter. They never missed a quarter. They mm -hmm. always hit their earnings, and I thought, no, no company does that. And that was a warning sign for me. 
I was like, okay, I'm staying away from this because it was just it was a mania going on at mm-hmm. the time about Enron, and I'm just, just stay away. I couldn't understand like you. I couldn't understand it, so I'm, I'm staying away. And that that's good advice. So so this is an interesting thing that comes up in these situations is this concept of loss, right? People don't want to lose money for obvious reasons. Um, and I've had this conversation, and here's the way I have this conversation. And they say to me, look, this is guaranteed. They're, they're, he's guaranteeing that I'm not going to lose it. And first of all, I'll say, well, that, that's worth whatever, yeah. you know, worth that and five bucks will get you a cup of coffee. So, so what is problematic about that is that all investments go up and down. And if someone is trying to protect you from that and shield you from the downside, the bear market or the, the, the inevitable downturns that are going to come, that's actually not good. What you want is to be able, any good company is going to pass on the upside and the downside to you because that's what an investment is. And anyone who says they're not doing that, that's problematic. You should not be in that investment. Sounds good, mm-hmm. but the reality is that will turn into a Ponzi scheme. That's not reality. It's not reality. <laughs> Life is not like that. You've yeah. got to be able to bear the risks of the market and losses are actually a good thing. If you see... If you saw Bernie Madoff's returns over the years, up, up, it was the up, same up. thing. There was never a down. I think he had like I think it was almost like thirteen percent a year every year yeah. without yeah. fail. Amazing, amazing how he and did that. your your buddy that I guess Harry. was yeah. yeah. I mean he saw it. Yeah, he says no one can do this. He, well, <laughs> but he, no one listened. He's a quant. He's a mathematician, and so he he tried to reverse engineer because he he's like whatever they're doing, I want to try to do it, and so he took public information. And tried to reverse engineer what their trading strategies were. And then to see, you know, he knew how big it was. And there would be, you can look at the market and see if there were big buys on those days and there weren't. And so he couldn't re- reverse engineer it. And he said, this is this can't be real. There's Based on if I recreate what they say they have and what the market performance was, it doesn't match. And But no one listened. That's actually the title of his book. Mm. No, no, one, one listened. no one listened. No one yeah. listened. Huh? Yeah. Well, Mark, I think that's good. We've gone on long enough. And okay. thank you for coming down yeah, and talking pleasure. to us. It's nice to meet you guys. That was fun, yeah. It was yeah. Great. Hopefully uh, we can all educate everyone and not have any of these cases in the future. All right. I, I always tell people if I can work myself out of a job, I'll be fine because <laughs> I will be happy that people are not getting caught up in these scams. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's human nature, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. It's all unfortunate. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you did well. If you need to review this topic, please re-listen to this lesson from the full series of audio lessons, which are available at siepodcast.com. Best of luck in your studies. All quizzes and content of the SIE podcast are copyrighted by Franz Amason, and all rights are reserved. No duplication is allowed without express written permission by Franz Amason.